everyone. This is Michael Govier from the Cinema 9 Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 220, There Will Be Blood, Movie Review. Brian, that is Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, Derek had me watch Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 film, There Will Be Blood, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano. So this should be interesting, and we are going to get to that shortly. But before we do, Derek, any pop culture for you in the past week? Of course, Chris, of course. Always. Can't be a week Mm -hmm. on this podcast without me having uh, a little dive to the past to watch some old movies. Oh, you watched old movies this week? Yes. Well, I saw an old one and a newer one, and then, of course, I have a documentary. But we'll start start with the new-ish one. Okay. So... From, from 2012, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. which some people would call new and some people would say, hey, that was a decade. That was a long time ago. You know me. The, you know where, you know where that falls for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know you may not have seen this, but I guarantee your wife has. I watched Magic Mike. Have you seen yes. Magic Mike? My, no, I have not seen Magic Mike. But yes, you're right. My wife has seen it. If I remember correctly, yes. I think her and a bunch of her like friends, they all went out to see Magic Mike when it came out. I remember. So. You know, yeah, I, I I don't know why I she'd go to see it. She just see me at home every single day like that. So, yeah, well, mm-hmm. um, so I had seen it before uh, many years ago when it first came out on video, um, and I think it was one of these situations where my wife was watching it, shocker, and I was in the room, but I was like playing on my phone or something. Like I wasn't really watching the movie, but I was there enough that I I remembered enough of it, but I hadn't actually watched it and so again it, it was on we had it recorded on the pvr and i thought i gotta get this thing off of there i, I thought oh, i'm gonna give this a try <laughs> i actually enjoyed it a lot more than oh, i yeah. than i thought i would it was it was pretty good all things considered um and uh you definitely see a lot of very uh fit gentlemen in this movie and in some of them you see a lot of them and uh yeah there's a lot of a lot of eye candy in this film but uh, nice. no it was it was it was pretty good and, and i thought it held up well uh i have not seen the sequel but I kind of want to see it now that I just rewatched the first one. So um, next week's show, we may have a room of Magic Mike XXL. Um, is, that, anyway, is that what the sequel was... is called, XXL? Yes, oh, I believe so. So the other one I watched, I guarantee I know you've seen this one. Mm. 1979, Ooh. I'd never seen it before, Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, God, Kramer versus Kramer is phenomenal. It's so good. So... I'd never seen it. Mm-hmm. I, I knew vaguely what it was yep. about. One Best I Picture in 1979, Dustin Hoffman. It, won, it was, yeah, nominated for nine Oscars. Yep. It won Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress Supporting mm-hmm. Role, Best Director, Best Writing. It was, yeah, it was nominated up and down the wazoo. It was uh, Worldwide Box Office for 1979. It was number one. Yep. It beat up, let me let me read you the top 10 okay. from this year. These are the movies that- This is worldwide made, or this is domestic US? Worldwide Box, box okay. Office okay. in 1979. 1979. Okay. Kramer versus Kramer, a movie yep. about 
a divorce, a couple going through divorce in a time when divorce is not really happening that much in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a character study, a dialogue piece. It's about a dad and his son. It is like, a you know, it's a very mundane style movie. Yep. This movie beat out all of these other movies for top money. Okay, I'm going to start at number 10. The Muppet movie. James Bond, Moonraker. Steve Martin in The Jerk. The Jerk, yeah. 10. Yep. Bo Derek. Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. Alien, the yes. Ridley Scott, the first one, Alien, Star Trek, the motion picture, the very first adaptation of Captain mm-hmm. Kirk Star Trek on right. the screen, Rocky Two, oh yeah, the and the Amityville Horror was number the second in the box office, and then twenty million dollars more than that, Kramer versus Kramer. Wow, like that is a crazy top ten, mm-hmm. like just ridiculous. I think and, it made uh, a lot of its money the next year in 1980 because it came out late in the in. 79. Yeah, that's what I think. I seem to I seem to remember that. I uh, I was doing a little homework on it, and it was just like holy crap. And let me tell you, the uh, so Dustin Hoffman won Best Actor for it. Yes, he beat out Jack Lemmon, Al Pacino, mm-hmm. Peter Sellers, and Roy Schneider for all that jazz. Like, talk about a stack category. Like, just oh. crazy sauce. Like this. It's too this bad because movie. I mean, if it wasn't for sort of that juggernaut, you know, of of Kramer versus Kramer. All that jazz, Roy Scheider should probably have won the Oscar. Yeah, I mean, you, know? you could argue that the, yeah. the, the director, Robert Benton, probably had no right to win over Apocalypse Now, Francis mm-hmm. Ford Coppola, or even all that jazz, Bob Fosse. But, I mean, the Oscars doesn't always get it right. But, uh, yeah, it, this was yeah, – I went back and looked at the Oscars from that year, the nominees, mm-hmm. and it was just like, holy crap. Talk about a who's who of the best people in, in the performing arts. And Meryl Streep's role Uh, was, was, was quite small. Like she had very little screen time, but I mean, you know, she took home the Oscar for that. So it was something, it was really about the relationship between him and the boy. Like that was really the, the impactful part of it all. And the thing was, you gotta, you know, you have always said this, you know, movies are subject to the time in which they're set. And back then, you know, when couples broke up, the children went with the mom. That's how it went. They didn't go with the dad. And so it was sort of groundbreaking in that sense that this was about the relationship of, you know, the young kid, you know, Justin Henry played him, of course, and then he went on to be in mm-hmm. 16 Candles. But I mean, even his, yep. his performance, he was nominated for his performance too. So good. The scene when they're eating the ice cream, oh, so good. And then the woman comes back into the, the picture at the very end. And of course, she's going to get him. So yeah, no, it was a good movie. I thought, what did you think? Yeah, did you mention, did you uh, like it or do you think it was dumb or do you like it? Well, I, I liked it, but to your point, it's very much of its time. Yeah. I found that uh, I was really, um, I was really, I don't want to say off put because that wouldn't be right, but it struck me how the male, like this was a movie all about, all about the men and the boys. So it's like when at the beginning, the wife says, I'm leaving. The husband's all about, how can you do this to me? And you're screwing up my life. And it was like very much like not, Hey, Clearly, you're unhappy. Hey, what have I done to contribute to this? But I guess in the 1979, that's not how relationships worked, right? It was there was the gender roles, and you did what you did, and and uh, yeah. So it, it really just struck me as as um, old fashioned, uh, definitely different than how it would be played out today, 40 years later. But but no, it was good. I mean, the performance was fantastic. Uh, I mean, the performances from everyone in this movie was fan- were fantastic. Uh, the movie was good. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's not again though. It's it's a pretty tough watch. I don't know if I would want to watch it over and over again. We talk about that rewatchability, yeah, but it's yeah. it's a drama. It's not designed, mm. but 
I was listening to a podcast after I watched this, um, and there was all of, the people on the podcast were all people who are um, were children of divorce, and so when they were growing up, they were kids, and they talked about all that. And as someone whose parents are still together and uh, does not have children of my own and have not experienced divorce, it, to me, it, it didn't work for me on those levels because I couldn't relate to it. But apparently, for people who who whose parents were divorced or who have been divorced, this movie speaks to them on a whole other level that just elevates it that much more. But anyway, mm-hmm. it was decent. Yeah, I liked it. Good. And you got to, you know, see a, a classic film that was an Oscar winner. So good. Yeah. And it got well, one more item off my PVR, which made my wife very happy. <laughs> no kidding. So. All right. And then I finally, I had a chance to watch a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. Documentaries. Please do tell. So, uh, just dropped this week on HBO. Two, it's a four-hour documentary broken into two two-hour parts, and it's all about comedian George Carlin. Oh, I was George going to Car- say that. I said that to my yeah, wife. George Carlin's American Dream. Oh, I said it to my wife this week. I was like, we have to watch this movie. There will be blood for the podcast. But the other thing I really want to watch is Judd Apatow has come up with this documentary on George Carlin. And I want to watch it. So tell me what's like, I mean, I can just, I know it's going to be fantastic, but go ahead. So it, it's, it's, it's quite good, but it's quite long. And mm-hmm. I, so I think it was about a year ago or maybe two years ago, um, Apatow did a similar length documentary on Gary Shandling. I think it was called the Gary Shandling Diaries or something. Okay. But it was the same production company and the the documentary was presented in the same way with a lot of um, like letters and written correspondence and things of that nature that are shown on the screen and, and there's certain effects that happen. So there's a very similar style of the way it was presented. And with, um, with this one, with George Carlin one that just dropped, uh, again, I, I've seen, I, I'm marginally familiar with some of Carlin's early stuff. Obviously, I know more of his later stuff just because I was older and was sort of there when it was happening. So it was it was interesting. It was educational. I learned a lot about him. But I found there was a lot of a lot of little details in here that I didn't really feel added to it and just felt like filler. And I, in the second part, even more so than the first part, they would show long segments of his stand-up in the documentary and then talk about that. It's like, well... You just showed almost a four or five minute clip. You could have showed 30 seconds and then talked about it and it would have had the same impact. It almost felt like they were contractually obligated to give us four hours, but they only had two and a half hours and they they padded it, which I, I kind of think hurt it a little bit because it just felt unnecessarily long. But I'm a fan of Carlin's stuff. Maybe mm-hmm. not everything for his whole career, but a lot of his stuff I, I really enjoy. I love the way he parses the, the nuances of language, which is a big part of how he made his bones. And his his uh, his way that he's got a, his eye on on politics and the way he's able to comment and satire and and use language to to drive home a, a very, uh, you know, a direct point that he's trying to make. Like, I, I've always found his work fascinating in that sense. And I, I mean, personally, I agree with most of what I've, I've seen him do. But, um, but yeah, my own my really my only criticism is that I felt this was a lot longer than it needed to be. So I'd say it's probably like a solid B. If you like Carlin, it's definitely a B. If you're not a big fan of Carlin, you probably wouldn't even maybe go more of a C simply because you're going to find it. My wife said the second half, she was fast forwarding through parts. She's like, it was just so long. It just, 
she didn't feel that it was going to add anything. So, but no, it, 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 I would definitely say check it out. I think you'll like it more than your wife. I think, I think I your wife, like knowing her movie taste, she, mm-hmm. I think she's going to bail after the first part. I remember when I was younger, there was two VHS tapes at our local VHS rental place in town, mm-hmm. and I would rent them over and over again. And one was Carlin at Carnegie, and the other mm-hmm. was Carlin on campus. And I would watch these stand-up tapes over and over again. I, Carlin at Carnegie was the better of the two, but I, I, they were both so good. God, he was just, he was just like a force of nature. He was just so, so, so good. And uh, yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to watching that. Okay, so for me, Derek, as you may have heard recently, actor Fred Ward passed away. So, Oh, yes, I did. R.I.P. Fred Ward. Yeah, I had a bit of free time this weekend. So I decided I had to watch Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. We, remo- nice. we reviewed that movie together uh, like two years ago here on the podcast. So yep. I figured I was due for a screening. So and it was I, your personal pick when we drafted the movies from yep. what year did that one come out? It was like in 1985. 85? Yeah. Yeah. I don't care what you think. I know you didn't like it. I like that movie. I didn't I, say I didn't like it. Oh, I thought you didn't. I, I liked you, it. I thought when we reviewed it, you were like, ah, it was kind of dumb. But uh, I really no, enjoyed no, it again. I, I, so. I remember it fondly. I remember seeing it in the theater when I was a little kid. Oh, yeah. And the thing was, like, he never made it as a huge Hollywood leading man. And you could say that Remo Williams was sort of his one shot that he had, you know, at that leading man stardom. And But the movie bombed when it came out you know the adventure may have began but uh, but it never continued that's for sure so mm-hmm. but regardless like i liked it then i still like it now i, I think everybody that didn't like it nah screw them all i thought it was good anyway so what do you say let's do a joke here's your dad joke of the week derek what was the first thing said at the plastic surgery addicts meeting hmm I have no idea. I see a lot of new faces here tonight. Oh, I think we may have to sew up your mouth so we don't have to hear any more of these bad dad jokes. <laughs> Give you a facelift. Oh, but I thought it'd be better if I did it with song. Any opportunity to sing a song. Yeah, Hundo P. Oh, my God, of course it is. World. Terrible. I'm a I can think of 11 reasons not to like that. <laughs> All right, Derek. So it was over to you this week to nominate a quote unquote newer movie around here. So yes. Uh, now just to clarify this, if anyone is relatively new to the podcast, I consider a newer movie to be anything that came out after 1989. So, I mean, it, it is the pop culture podcast for the generations after all. So I like everything from Generation X and you are always trying to get me more sort of in tune with the pop culture from the millennial generation. So you decided to go with Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. It's it's over two and a half hours long. It's a historical drama. In other words, you, you come into this, you just know I'm going to totally hate it. So why do you decide to go with this movie, Derek? All right. So to start with, the movie's got exceptional pedigree and has been reviewed exceptionally fondly ever since it came out. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay. It won uh, Best Performance by an actor in a leading role for Daniel Day-Lewis. I believe this was his second Oscar win. 
or his third Oscar win. Anyway, he was fantastic in it, deserved uh, this accolade. It also won Best Cinematography, and it was nominated for a couple others. Um, I read a thing recently where in uh, 2020, a couple of uh, journalists from the New York Times uh, that are film critics were asked by their community to put together a list of the 25 best movies that have come out since the year 2000, sort of, you know, the next century of movies. What are we looking at? And, and rumor has it these two guys put their heads together and both said, well, there's no question there will be blood is number one. Now let's go away and figure out what the other 24 movies are. And apparently when the movie came out in 2007, it was just considered the best movie on like almost every top 10 list. So critics loved it. Uh, I, I'm not sure how it did as far as uh, generating revenues, but it's uh, it's a critical darling. Uh, it's got it, it got all these award nominations, and uh, it continues to be. I don't want to necessarily say a cult favorite because it was a pretty mainstream movie, but given that it is long and slow and nuanced, it's not really your your the the kind of movie that we would rewatch over and over again, especially with the the running time being as long as it is, but. It's one of these ones that if you're uh, if you're into film, if you're a, a a person who enjoys cinema, capital F film, you have to watch this at least once. And I'd be shocked if if people who feel that they are film lovers don't enjoy this movie, if not love it outright. It 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 has a lot to like about it. Now, it's not to say it's a perfect movie, and we'll go into it. There are definitely some some issues, some flaws, some, some parts that are maybe not as strong. And, you know, as we go through the podcast tonight, I'll talk about some of the scenes that I think are maybe a little unnecessary or a little too long or could have been cut or could have been changed. But then again, I'm not a Hollywood director. What do I know? And um, so anyway, I wanted to expose you to this film because I was pretty sure you hadn't seen it before. Paul Thomas Anderson, many people probably remember him as the director of Boogie Nights. That mm-hmm. sort of was his coming out party, right. no pun intended. And, the, a lot of the films he's done since then have been very um, niche, but very critically acclaimed. And um, he always has a good eye for picking strong talent to be in his movie. So with all of that sort of build up and preamble, I asked you to go away and watch this almost three hour movie. And uh, if you're anything like me, I had to watch it in two sit- two sittings. Like yeah. I just I couldn't I didn't have the time and the energy to sit through the whole thing as much as I was enjoying it. Um, so I'm hoping you had a chance to watch it if you. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you watched it in one sitting or not, but uh, that's that. What? Uh, tell me what you thought, and then we'll uh, we'll do a deep dive. Right. Yeah, we'll get into it. So I I also had to watch it in. I had to break it up into two parts, and it was mostly because of my wife. So I always watch his movies with my wife, and she's like, "This is just too long. Like, I can't watch this anymore. We got to take a break." And so we came back the next night, and on the next night we watched the second half of the movie. And she got up and left, and she's like, "Oh my god, this is so boring. I just I cannot watch this." But it, we're not here to get her take on it. We're here to get mine. So I've been doing this podcast for seven seasons now, and I have had to watch a lot of movies over the years. So first from Yancey, and then now from you, Derek. Some of them have been bad. Some of them have been really, really bad. But I will say in seven years of watching movies, this was hands down the best film I have watched on this podcast. And it's wow. not even close. Not even close. I kind of like The Dark Knight. Yancey had me watch that one. I remember I, I liked Pleasantville. You had me watch that mm-hmm. one. Alien, you liked the first Alien. Yeah, Alien, which I had never seen, believe it or not, even Gen X. 
But this movie, my God, this is an absolute all-time classic. Thank you for making me watch this, Derek. It was fantastic. Oh, my I, I'm God. I'm very excited that you feel this way. This this should make for some interesting discussion. I think I'd like to start our dive into this movie, as you put it. I, I want to talk a little bit about what I like to call sort of quote-unquote American films. Okay? So, I think yep. I would define... American films as those films that are not only made in the USA, obviously, but like films that encapsulate the American experience, if that makes any sense. You know, does that make sense? Do you believe that there are unique American films? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I would say that the first real great American film was 1941 Citizen Kane, you know, the, oh, the, the, whole sure. I, the whole idea of the, the film is pretty much based on the life of William Randolph Hearst, you know, it's a, but it's about ambition and it's about power and greed and politics and ego. And it's 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 almost like like what it's about to, to sort of chase the American dream at the highest level. And it tells the story in such a unique way. I think I really believe it's the best film ever made. So Citizen Kane, first great American film. And then in 1972, Francis Ford Coppola came out with The Godfather, which I would say is was the next great American film. In, in 1994, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction was kind of took a look at the underbelly of American society, but I think all the same archetypes are there. Power, greed, selfishness, crime, loyalty, all that stuff. And now I feel we can add to that list with There Will Be Blood. Because... This movie, this film, is about the battle for the soul of a developing United States of America. It's about greed and exploitation and ego and, well, it's about blood. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. so that's my take on it. So, I mean, like I say, we're going to get into this a little bit more, but man, oh man, this is one of the greatest films ever made about the American experience and the American dream. And it has all those archetypes, like I say, greed and power and you know, religion and selfishness, and I'm sure we're going to get into all this tonight. So that's my initial take. What do you think? Nice. No, I agree. I, I, my wife has never seen this and she was not about to sit through a three hour epic with me this week, Uh, but she is aware of the film and is aware of, um, how highly praised it is by so many people. So we were talking about it before we came down to do the podcast tonight. and, And she says, she goes, well, like, I know it's about oil, but like, what's it really about about? And so, I tried to summarize it into just a couple of minutes of, you know, well, it's about this and that and the other thing. And and I think I did a pretty good job sort of tightly, but um, I could see that she it wasn't really something that, that sounded like she would enjoy. She's like, well, one day I have to be in the right mood. I'll watch it. I'm like, well, as long as that day isn't like this week, I'm like, you let me know and I'll probably watch it again with you. But it's it's definitely not the kind of movie I would want to watch. Like, so watch it now. I think the last time I saw it was just before the pandemic. And I think I'm going to need at least another two years before I'm going to want to sit down and watch it again because it's I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong. I love it. But it's a tough watch. Like there's there's a lot to unpack. So I always like to take a look at the box office of the films that we do. So this this film was released on December the 26th of 2007, right at the end of the year. So I think we really need to look at the box office from 2008 to kind of get an idea of, you know, how the film was received by by mainstream audiences. Mm -hmm. And the way it was received wasn't really, really good. I mean, it made $40 million, but that was only good for 74th 
place overall that year. This film was outgrossed by such luminaries as Welcome Home Roscoe Jenkins, The Forbidden Kingdom, Bedtime Stories, and Step Up to the Streets. Wow. <laughs> this So this might have been an all-time great American film, but American audiences sure are dumb. Because <laughs> I've never even heard of those other films. I mean, like, top of the box office was things like The Dark Knight, Iron Man, you know, Hancock, and, you know, movies like that. Like, there's all those comic book movies and stuff. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about the cast. So Daniel Day-Lewis, we got to start with him. You, I think you have to consider him as one of the greatest actors of his generation, right? Oh, no question. He's top three, no question. Arguably number one, but absolutely top three. It's funny, you mentioned uh, Kramer versus Kramer before. I always felt that Dustin Hoffman was the greatest actor of his generation. I really did. I always believed that. But I think Daniel Day-Lewis might be the greatest actor of his generation. Now, you you know, you, you kind of touch base on this. He's been nominated for six Academy Awards. He was nominated for, first of all, in 1990 for My Left Foot, which he won. Then he was nominated for In the Name of the Father in 94 and in 2003's Gangs of New York. And then in 2008, in this film, There Will Be Blood, he won this one. And then he also won the next time he was nominated in 2013 for Lincoln. And then he was just nominated in 2018 for Phantom Thread. So, Also, Phantom Thread, also written and directed by um, Paul Thomas Anderson, same guy who wrote and directed this movie. Nice. And the year that, 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 of this, that when this one came out in 2007, he won. And he was up against George Clooney, who was nominated for Michael Clayton, Johnny Depp, for Sweeney Todd, Tommy Lee Jones in The Valley of Ella, and Viggo Mortensen in Eastern Promises. Mortensen aside was, from aside, I was going to say, aside from Viggo Mortensen, if he had lost to any of those other three, it, I mean, it would have been a travesty for any of them. But yeah. what about Paul Dano? I, he's I, he's a little bit of an odd fish. I, he I, is, I, isn't he? He's got an odd look to him, but he's been in a lot of stuff. Like I was trying to describe him to my wife, and I said, well. He was the, again, sort of a minor spoiler here. He was in the new The Batman movie that came out with, uh, you know, the Twilight guy playing Batman. So Paul Dano's in that. And and my wife's like, I don't really remember him in Batman. And so I was telling, I'm like, and she's like, no. And then I'm trying to think of what else he's been. And I go, oh, I know where you'll know him from. The uh, John Favreau classic Cowboys and Aliens, where he plays Han Solo's son and she's like oh I know exactly who you're talking about I was like it's kind of sad that 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 was the role that he's remembered for I'm like he was also in 12 years a slave he was also and I'm rhyming off some of the other like critical things she he's been in and she's like yeah I don't remember him in any of those other things it's like oh man so in any case I've only ever seen him in two other movies and both of which he didn't speak so Little Miss Sunshine and Prisoners right He's a decent enough actor, but like you said, he's very odd, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think it kind of lends itself to the role here in this movie. Um, but I got I to gotta be honest, at times, at least for me, I felt that he was a little bit out of his element acting in scenes with Daniel Day-Lewis. Now, I mean, you know. Well, everybody would is, be, but, you know, but, yeah. but I mean, it just, yeah, it was really hard. So I want to talk a little bit about the themes that are at play in this movie. And for me... The, the the this movie is about the battle between religion and capitalism and how they're fighting and they're battling for the soul of America. That's what this movie is well, about. And not only that, but it's 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 exactly that, but it's also 
I think a look at how similar those two things are like where people wouldn't necessarily like you would think, Oh, well it's clearly they're going in opposite directions. You know, uh, they're, they're two totally different things, but it's like, I think this movie does a good job of really threading that, that parallel between the two. And you get to see Daniel day Lewis's character as the, the icon of capitalism and greed and wealth and power. But at the same time, you have Paul Dano's character of Paul Sunday. It, he does the same things. He he manipulates and he's he's greedy and he's trying to get power and he's he's you know he's using his power money. to to money. to yeah. gain what he needs. Yeah. And it's like these two these two guys are not all that different, nope. despite what each of them probably thinks of the other. And uh, I, I think that's really clever the way that it's it all comes together during the course of the film. It also reminds me a lot of Citizen Kane. You know, because Daniel Plainview's only real goal is just to become rich. <laughs> like, that's that's it. Like, I mean, that's his motivation, right? Um, I want to talk a little. So let's just kind of like dive into the film a little bit. You know, we've we got to go back through it. So it opens up with with Daniel Day-Lewis. He's kind of digging and mining all alone. I'm not sure why he does, but he falls down that mine shaft and he gets hurt like really, really bad. And he pulls himself up, which right there, the ultimate American allegory you know he, yep. he pulls himself up you know and, and does it and so he almost dies looking for I think he's looking for silver and gold if I remember silver correctly. and gold yeah, yeah. Uh, just like Burl Ives silver and gold mm-hmm. anyway anything for that I can sing um, so but the thing was he, he takes whatever he, he mines and he takes it in to cash it in and he only just makes like a little bit of money on it so he's like mm-hmm. okay this isn't working out so he sets his sights on oil and then they start drilling and there's two guys down in the well and they're like scooping up the oil. Like it's dirty and it's gross and, and it's dangerous. I mean, one of them gets hit when something falls down the well and kills him. Oh, right? geez. Yeah. And, and it really just shows kind of the sacrifice that real people had to make to build that country. You know how, how the yeah, development yeah. of the country itself is built on blood, you know? I also yep. think that there will be blood refers to, and we'll, we'll come back to the title in a bit, but I think it also, the blood is not just necessarily actual human blood, but maybe it refers to oil, how that's the blood of the, yeah. the country too, right? So that, that was, that was how I always interpreted yeah. it. But, uh, but again, with a, with a, a nuanced title like that, you can certainly parse it and, and interpret it in different ways. But I just want to say about the opening sequence, mm-hmm. I think the first 15 minutes of this movie is as good as the op- as the opening of any any movie ever like there's a handful of movies that you say what are the and i think you and yancy one of your very first podcasts you're like what are oh, some yeah. of the best yep. opening sequences it's like raiders of lost Ark has a fantastic Arc. saving private ryan saving excellent private opening ryan, sequence yep. up has one of the the you know saddest most amazing opening sequences that will make you cry no matter how heartless you think you might be this opening sequence just the first like i said it's about 10 or 15 minutes it just sets everything up and there is no dialogue. Nope. It is just the camera work. It's just the actor actors being actors performing on the screen. It's the way it's shot. It's the, the lighting and the color and the cinematography. And it's, it's riveting. It's fascinating. And I think it does a good job of establishing how this movie is going to be as far as the pacing. It's like, 
We're just going to be slow and meticulous and you're going to see what happens. And we're not going to hit you over the head with dialogue or a narrator explaining, this was when I went down the well and looked for thing, blah, blah, blah. It's like, nope. We'll just sit back, watch, and and enjoy what you're gonna what you're gonna be in for. Like I, I just I I whenever I see this in the lineup, even if I'm not really in the mood to watch the whole movie, if I can catch those first ten or fifteen minutes, I watch. And then I usually end up going to bed because I'm like, I don't have three hours right now. <laughs> so, so so then he takes so the guy that dies in the well, he takes his son and he raises him kind of as his own, right? But he does it yeah. like not out of love or anything. He just does it mostly to exploit the kid. He basically uses yeah. the kid as a prop, you know, just to make people think he's a good family man so that they'll they'll kind of trust him and they'll invest, in, you know, in his oil drilling operations. Right. And then. Well, and he even says that later in the movie. Right. He says yeah. I need it. Someone someone accuses him of doing that. Uh, you just needed a pretty face to get through the door. And later on, he he spouts back that exact same line of dialogue to the son much, much later when he's trying right. to hurt him. Right. You mentioned Paul Dano. He was Paul Sunday, but he plays two characters because he's also Eli Sunday. They're like twin brothers. Right. And then Eli wants ten thousand dollars for the Sunday family land. And by the way, I, I love how the the character who represents the theme of religion in the film is named Sunday. A bit on the nose. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So then Daniel finds out that Eli beats his younger sister if she doesn't pray. So he's like, OK, so he's one of those hypocritical religious types that are all about power rather yeah. than the true teachings of the Bible, right? Which is, yeah. again, it's just so typical of the American experience in itself. You know, he he tries to win over his flock by, like, he's, he's emoting like crazy, and he's, like, casting out the devil from this woman's arthritic body. Daniel Plainview sees right through him, right? He knows Eli's a huckster. So right from the get-go, you know this is going to be a battle between religion and capitalism. Right. The whole movie yep. is set up. Right. But the thing is, too, like building on what you were saying before, both men are brainwashing the people of the town, one for oh, religion yeah. and the other one for oil. Right. Yep. The, the only question is when you're watching is, like, OK, which side is going to win this battle for the soul of the town, for the soul of America? Right. Is it religion? Is it capitalism? And to be honest, that's a question that still is not answered today. You know, 120 years after this film is set. Well, and you, you could even argue that as long as both of them are competing, nobody wins. Everyone's a loser. Everyone who's caught in between is a loser in some way. And that, that criticism, that take probably still holds true to this day. Because both of them work on a zero-sum game. Right. We have a winner and we have a loser. There's no compromise. There's no like, hey, let's compromise this and you can win a bit and I can win a bit. Neither side believes in that, right? Yeah. We were just talking about um, Paul Dano playing the dual role. So the very first time I saw this, uh, I never did see it in the theater. I only ever saw it on cable uh, or on DVD or Blu-ray or what have you. I didn't realize that it was the one actor playing two roles. And I was a little confused when they went to the – so, like, he shows up. What, what I mean, what I now understand is they're twin bro, twin boys, and the one kid, Paul, shows up and mm -hmm. says, like, hey, my, my family has this farm, rah, 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 you could buy the land cheap. I just want a little bit of money up front, and he does it. And then that character is seen from again in the movie. No, and then when he, he shows up on again. the farm, he's yep. – he sees the other boy who looks identical and he's like, oh, my name is Eli. And he's like, oh, OK, well, they're twins. I didn't get that the first time through. I thought it was the same 
kid. I thought what had happened when on my first watching, I thought it was, so he's traveled to wherever Daniel is. He's explained what's going on. And then when, and then went home ahead of Daniel. And so when he shows up, he pretends like, no, I don't know you because I'm actually trying to help you swindle this land from my father. Oh, that could have been. It took me like, yeah. took me like an hour or so into my first viewing to realize, oh no, I'm, t- I was totally mistaken. I misunderstood. It's literally supposed to be two brothers that look the same. The one guy came and the other guy has never left here. But when you watch it, when I'm watching it that first time, and that was sort of what I expected to be what was going on, it sort of skewed my my first watch of it. So I, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who who didn't catch that that quickly the first time through. But in any case, so I'm watching this movie and I'm trying to like, like figure out, I always try to figure things out. So how does sure. an oil Derek work? Like, I'm often amazed by this stuff. So Derek, Derek, you're a documentary. You got to find me a documentary I can watch so I can learn about this. Like I, I kept watching the oil Derricks, and I've I've seen them before in movies and stuff. Like how they go up mm-hmm. and down, and I'm trying to figure out like how, like do they plunge a rod like down deeper and then deeper into the ground? Is that how it works like, until they hit? A I think it's like uh, I think it's like a, a suction pump. Like you would like you would pump water out of the ground. I think it's the same principle, just on a much larger scale. And then this, the scene when the, where the Derek strikes oil and then it just comes rushing up, you know, and then, and then it catches oh God, on fire. So good. When it catches yeah. on fire and then then they, they put it out with dynamite. And my wife is like, well, why are they using dynamite? And then I was explaining to her, like, if you remember back in the Gulf War in 1991, yes. Saddam yep. Hussein was losing that war. So he went around and he ordered his army to go around and light on fire all the oil derricks. And... How they put them out, and it was a team of like Americans and Canadians that went over there, and they used explosives to put out yeah. the fire. And the idea is, is that you put the explosive in this case, in this movie, dynamite, and you put it close to the, the where where the where the the oil is coming out and it's on fire, and the explosion, just that instant split second that the explosion takes place, sucks so much oxygen into it, it cuts off the oxygen to the flame. And the flame goes yep. out, and then you just got oil coming up. Like it's just amazing. Who figured this out? <laughs> Again, I got science, man. It's amazing. Science. I find that stuff so fascinating. I don't know. I just find it so. But this movie was so stylistic. Like the cinematography was incredible. You mentioned it won the best uh, Oscar for uh, best cinematography, and rightly so. The the scene when they strike oil. And it like blows the daylights out of the, that wooden oil rig and, and the boy loses his hearing. The yep. way Paul Thomas Anderson uses, like he puts in this loud music and Daniel Day-Lewis is talking, but you can't hear what he's saying. You know, it's just so right. stylistic. Oh man, this movie looks and the And the visual, fantastic. I loved, yeah. I loved in that sequence where first you have the, the, first they strike oil and it's like black rain everywhere and the mm. people are covered in this oil. Then it catches on fire, and you now have these black, thick smoke clouds covering the sky. And it goes, it basically looks like it goes from daytime to nighttime in in a matter of minutes because these black clouds are so thick, they're just blocking out everything. And uh, it just, it's, and again, it's another one of these sequences where there's, there's no, discernible dialogue because the score has been amped up so much just to help emphasize the chaos and that there's there's no real way to communicate effectively it's just people need to act and do their thing and it's just like yeah that that sequence is phenomenal to watch and and going back to one of the thematic elements that you were touching on there's there's a scene where eli comes 
and asks Plainview for money, right? And Plainview just slaps him around. So again, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's sort of that battle between religion and capitalism. And the thing is, like you touch base on, Eli seems to side with capitalism. Religion kind of comes over that way because he even says to the dad, you're stupid. God doesn't forgive stupid people. A, a truly religious person would never say that, you know, but capitalism and greed corrupt everything, right? Even religion, you know, which, which we even, we see this today. You know, if you look at these huckster TV evangelists, you know, with their mansions and their private jets, it's not about religion. It's about using religion as a tool to gain wealth. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, so nothing's changed. So, um, so I want to I want to just go back to that scene you said a minute ago. So mm-hmm. they they strike oil and then the uh, you know then Eli goes to Daniel Plainview and like you got to think that's probably the same day or the next day he right. literally comes over and goes I want my money. So it's like he comes to him and and it's the greed. It's it's the you know he wants his money and and Daniel literally slaps him around. It's not long later in the movie when. Um, when Daniel is uh, in order to get the bandy track that he's asking for to lay his pipeline, um, Eli's uh, Eli's companion says to uh, you need to be baptized. If you want to, if you want to build your pipeline across my land, I want you to join our church and be baptized. And sure enough, you can baptize someone, you know, it, it, it I'm not an expert, but there are different ways you can do it. And what does Eli do? He takes this opportunity to be petty and have revenge and he starts slapping Daniel as yep. a part of the quote unquote baptism ritual. I can't believe that he treats any of his other congregates that way. Nope. But this again, I think is the, is the, the pettiness, the, 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 it's the revenge it's about power aspect. And it's about, control. it's the power. Absolutely. It's a, it's it's a the, battle for supremacy, you know, again, why this and, is such an American important American film. You know, and this is this is where you again continue to see these parallels between these two characters. When one is in power over the other, this is how he treats them. Oh, well, you treated me like that. Well, I'm going to treat you like that now. And you see this happen. There are many examples of this in this movie where you can't hold up Eli's character and say, "Well, he represents all the best things about uh, a holy man who has true faith." It's like, well, he may have some of those qualities, but he clearly embodies a lot of these other very negative qualities that Daniel Day Lewis's character encapsulates as the the representation of capitalism, and uh, and it sort of makes you question, like, is there some of that in all of us, and uh, or, or even in all the characters in the film, for that matter? So, no, I, I just I found it was interesting to see those kinds of parallels. And, and Plainview's worldview is deeply cynical. Like he says at one point, I hate most people, you know, and, and, yep. and he sees all relationships as just transactional. Absolutely. You know? I mean, look at his relationship Absolutely. with the kid, right. And everybody else, like, you know, and like I said, like everything's a zero sum game in this. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the, the problem is, I think, is that this is a worldview that's still held by a large number of Americans today. An entire political party in the United States holds this worldview. You know, 120 years later, nothing's changed. Like there's still people who just selfishly hold on to this thought, you know, anything that benefits them, screw everybody else, you know, and the scene when, when, when Daniel finds out that Henry isn't really his brother, he just goes nuts and he kills him. Right. So, so, so fine. Okay. It's okay for him to exploit other people, but you know, he can use them in the transaction way. But if someone does it to him. Even if it's not overly harmful, he freaks out. 
where he kills a guy and he buries him. And then it's interesting because the old man, I, I think it was Bandy. Was his yeah, name, it was right? Bandy. Yeah. He he finds out that Daniel killed this guy and buried him. And and he makes him confess in church in order to get the kind of the easement to build the the, the pipeline yeah. that he wanted. And it's it's almost like the old man wanted to use religion to kind of tame or to control that unchecked capitalism that was going on. Mm-hmm. So many great themes in this movie. God, this movie's good. And then, yeah. you know, like you said, Eli takes it too far. I'm going to use this to, to, to humiliate him and slap him around. And, and, and then, of course, what happens when religion and capitalism battle for the soul of a nation? There will be blood, <laughs> you know, yep. and it's it's literally the perfect metaphor for the American experience. That title mm-hmm. like war, there will be blood, gun violence, there will be blood, Nazis in Charlottesville or cops shooting minorities, Kyle Rittenhouse shooting protesters, there will be blood, you know, whether it takes place in 1900 or or now. The metaphor is still there. It rings true. Oh, man, yeah. it's so good. You mentioned something I thought was interesting. You said it's not a perfect film. It's really long. It's obviously over two and a half hours. I thought the scene in the restaurant where Plainview approaches the oil guys that had offered him money previously, I felt yeah. that scene seemed a little bit unnecessary. It was kind of redundant. You know, yeah, the, that this, scene didn't accomplish much for me. Like they'd already established everything in, in in that regard, so that was one for me. Yeah, I felt I felt that there was so like so many other there are so many other movies we've done in this podcast where one of my big criticisms is people who choose to um, be jerks simply because they can, rather than to just be civil, and like the, so. There's the scene where. Um, where Daniel um, uh, uh, Daniel Day Lewis's character, and at this point he's with the guy he thinks is his brother, and he goes to meet the oil man, and they offer him a million dollars, right? And and he turns him down, flat out turns him down. But then he like really gets seems to get insulted when he's like, "Oh, you can take some time and be with your boy," and like he just mm-hmm. flies off the deep end and gets all angry at him. And it's like, I, again, I didn't really understand why he reacted that way. And then that seems to carry forward into the scene you're talking about where he decides to be a jerk about it. I'm, I, I just kept thinking like, why would you do that? What do you, what do you expect to gain out of this encounter by behaving this way? How is this going to be better for you? Like he seems so transactional that it just seems odd to me that his character would make some of these poor choices about how to, um, about uh, how he chooses to interact with others. I would think someone who is as transactional as he is would want to always keep options open of let's not burn this bridge because one day I may need I may need something from this person or probably in his mind I may need to exploit this person. I may need to, you know, get an inside track with this person and and there are a few scenes in the movie where he just chooses to interact poorly with other people and, and in the circumstances it's always because he's a person he's in a position of power he's a person of power he feels he can do whatever he wants and i guess that's probably the explanation well yeah but but it just you're always right bothers. like what's what's his motivation there because he says to the guy you don't tell me how to raise my son you do not tell me but i mean what did he care he didn't really love the kid he just used him as a prop you know so mm-hmm. i mean it was weird weird to find out like what was his motivation yeah so the whole um the whole part with the brother I get why we why that's in there. The idea that even someone who seems to be as shrewd as Daniel Plainview can be manipulated and tricked and conned. Mm-hmm. And 
when he realizes he's been duped, he takes an extreme measure, which ultimately leads to getting baptized. And, and there are other things that, that, that you know, mm. the dominoes fall in the course of the story. But I find that the whole part of the movie where the from when the brother shows up to when you find out he's not really his brother and he kills him. I find that in my mind, that is the most boring part of the movie. And on a rewatch, that's the part I'm most likely to fast forward through. I just I, I just don't feel like it really adds a lot other than. At this point, he sends his son away almost at the exact same time that this quote unquote brother shows up. And it's like, well, I only need one person to be at my side that I can count on. And so he's, you know, he's trading up one for the other. But I don't know. I just that this part of the movie yeah. is the only part that I just really feel doesn't doesn't seem to fit. I mean, it's I guess necessary to advance the plot, though. Well, yeah, I mean, they could they could have taken that whole part right out and just had Bandy mm-hmm. just approach him and say, listen, yeah. you want my easement? I want to see you baptized. That's yeah. it. And it, not, yeah. not, not he, the, the way the movie is laid out is because Bandy wanted him baptized because he knew that he killed that guy, but he could just say, I just want you baptized, period, you know, yeah. and then do that. I thought it was interesting when the son grows up and then he wants to go to Mexico and start his own drilling company Yeah, rather, rather than being proud, you know, or, or being supportive, you know, that, that a father normally would do. The first instinct Plainview has, he's threatened. He sees his yeah. son as competition. You know, just yeah. the amount of greed and selfishness is astounding because at this point of the story, he's rich. He's rich as hell and he's in this huge mansion. He just sits there and drinks. And it's all during day. the Depression. Like, yeah. it's not only is he rich, his, his, the level between rich and poor has just increased by, a, you know, so much more because of the depression so many people have just lost absolutely everything they have and he couldn't be he's probably the richest he's ever been at the height of the depression simply because he controls oil which now is even a a more valuable commodity than it's ever been it's uh yeah like he couldn't clearly he's at a point in his life where anything he can buy he has bought but by the end of the movie it's clear that he is he is alone, right? He is lonely. He has, yep. and this I think speaks back to that scene we talked about in the restaurant. The guy offered him a million bucks and he turns it down. And part of it, that dialogue, he says to him something like, what would I do with the million dollars? And they don't really resolve that question. And I think this is the the visualization of that, the realization of that 10 years later in the movie, he now has probably well more than a million dollars, but it's like, okay, I'm rich. Now what do I do? Mm-hmm. And he's, 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 burn down every bridge he's ever had. He doesn't have any true friends. He doesn't have any family. The, the, the son, you know, even not by blood, but the son that he raised, he's estranged from, he's chooses to fight with them. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a sad tale, but I guess the, the sort of the, the message here is if you're going to be successful in business and you want to be at the top of the food chain, you can't have any attachments. Like you need to just be driven a hundred percent until you get there. But it's like, well, you're there now. What, like, what's the next step? Right, so it's, which it's, which it's, again is is a parallel with Citizen Kane because at the end of Citizen mm-hmm. Kane, he you know he had amassed all this wealth and he was in this mansion, but he was by himself, right? Yeah, and and I'm glad you mentioned kind of that when he was talking to his son because he describes his son and he's like picking on him and trying to hurt him and and he, and he says you know he uses words like you know anger and maliciousness and backward business mm-hmm. dealings to describe his son, but. All of those are just projections of what he is himself, yeah. which which to me is just another feature of Americanism. This idea of projecting your flaws onto your adversaries. That way it makes it seems like, well, everyone does it, you know, so it's not so bad that I do it. 
I mean, think about this tactic has become sort of the calling card for the former president of the United States in 2020. You know, like everything yeah. that we see in this movie still resonates today. You know, it's still prevalent in today's America and there's still a battle for the soul of the nation. If you, I bet you if you come back in another hundred years, I think you'll find the battle is still going on. Nothing's changed. Yep. Now, I want to, uh, I, uh, we're getting close to the end here. So I yeah. want to just talk about the end of this movie. The final scene. Um, oh, so the final good. scene. Oh, yeah. So, good. so one of the things, even people who have not seen this movie, but know even a little bit about it, they know the whole line of the, you know, the, the, the thing that's been parodied so much, the idea of the, I drink your milkshake. Yes. And so this is, and again, the first time I saw this, I had heard the whole thing about the milkshake, but I didn't, I knew it was from this movie, but I didn't know the context. And here I am, two and a half hours in the movie, going, Where is I haven't heard anything about a milkshake. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's happening? And then, so at the end, when he describes this, when uh, you know, uh, Eli shows up, and um, and at first money. it's all he's all smiles, yep. he's all like, I have a, you know, I have this business opportunity, and I'll sell you this thing, and I need my hundred thousand. And and Daniel even asks him, How are you? And he's like, Oh, I'm doing great. Because he thinks he's about to get this this get rich quick scheme. And then when he finds out he has, you know, drainage, drainage, and he's like spitting all over when he's just enunciating. Mm -hmm. And uh and he explains like all the oil underneath that land has been has been drained out. And that's when you get the whole milkshake. If I have the straw, I drink your milkshake. And it's like, oh, that's where that's from. But I, I but in like, the scene, yeah. In the scene, um, Eli even refers to Daniel at the beginning because Daniel's son is married to Eli's sister. So he says, you are my brother by law. I mean, I guess technically it wouldn't be his brother-in-law, but it would be like his, mm -hmm. I guess, father-in-law? No, whatever. Anyway, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's it's just, it really just right, it brings you right to the last scene of the movie where it just goes to show the the parallels between these two characters. And, and he even refers to them as brothers. And it's like, yep, they're mm -hmm. so different, but they're still so much the same. And it's the, you know, the greed and the, the desire and the the need for power. And then when he finds out that, nope, Daniel Day-Lewis is like, nope, I'm not going to give you this thing. And he's like, oh, well, maybe, you know, I'm, I've made these bad investments, blah, blah, blah. Two seconds earlier, he's like, yeah, I'm fine. And then it's like, oh, no, I need this money. I'm really not fine. And it's, it's a good point, too, like, and, because the, the fact that, 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 that his son married Eli's sister, they're now locked in together. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I thought in that scene was interesting because, Eli asked him for money and he's like, okay, I want you to repent. I want you to say I'm a false prophet and God is yeah. superstition. And he makes him say it over and over and over again. And then he's like, okay, let me tell you but how that, oil drilling really works. But that, <laughs> I drink that your milkshake. Yeah, but that reflects back on the previous scene where he was being baptized. And of he's course. like, I want you to say it. I want you to say yep. it louder. I want you to say it louder. Again, it's that, oh, well, remember when you were in the position of power? I had you do this. Well, now you're in the position. I'm having you do that. And it's this back and forth, back and forth. It goes from the slapping to the slapping and then to the, to the say these things, even though you don't mean them to say these things that, that you don't mean. And it's like, yeah, it's just, you continue to see these parallels between yes. these two characters where when one has power over the other, how can I ex exert my power? How can I make this person feel belittled? How can I do something embarrassing or insulting to this person or have them do it to themselves so that they can get what they need. And and yeah, to your point, he finally, after he yells this out and he's like repeating it over and over again and he's crying and he's red in the face and then Daniel's like, yeah, there's no oil there. So <laughs> yeah, I already took it all. Like, wow. Here's how it yeah. works. <laughs> yeah. And then I love how in sort of one final violent blow, capitalism beats religion. 
and there will yep. be blood, <laughs> lots of it. Yeah. And I think it's also so fitting that it takes place in the most American of American places, a bowling alley, a bowling alley. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think in the perfect ending, the butler comes in and Plainview says, I'm finished. <laughs> it's yep. just like, oh, my God. It's oh, man. Unbelievable. Okay, so you want to give it a rating out of 10? Nine and a half. I will go 10 out of 10. Wow. I think this this should be studied in film school. I really do. Oh, I, I agree. I, I absolutely so agree. Good. Oh, my God. It's so good. Of, like, There's so much seven structure. You could, do a, you could do a whole semester on this yeah. and every week explore a different aspect of the movie from what it actually is showing, like to the performances, to the way it's shot, and then to the nuances of the metaphor and the themes and the the comparisons and the kind. Yeah, there's just you could deconstruct this movie over a 15 week semester and like have different, totally different things every single week. So yeah, how did this movie things. slip under the radar? Like it wasn't a big hit. Like I mean, it didn't win Best Picture. You know, like I mean, I just feel like in a lot of ways that this is this is an underappreciated film, but it's an absolute complete masterpiece masterpiece yeah i think i think the the length scares people away that it's it's just got such a long running time and um but i think over time it's it's definitely gained a following i think it's gained a lot of recognition i think the critical praise year after year decade after decade getting on these longer what are the best movies of the 20 the first 10 years of the decade what are the best movies of the of the 2000s like it continues to be on these lists and usually top these lists um i think it's going to have a lot more staying power and um yeah i I don't think it's going anywhere i think this is only going to get more recognition as time passes and like you said the themes are regrettably not going away anytime soon nope i don't think we're gonna get any resolution on this i think this this uh you know i don't know if we could call it a morality tale but uh it definitely forces you to ask some questions of yourselves, of your of yourself, of your own beliefs, of your own faith, of your own opinions. And uh, I mean, those are the kind of things that great movies will often do. So I it's usually, not going anywhere soon. Yeah, I usually criticize you for the films that you make me watch on this podcast. So I don't say this very often, but thank you. Thank you, Derek. This was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So, I'm, gl- I'm really glad you oh liked it. God, unbelievable. So, okay, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right, my friend, you know, there's there's a game that I like to play around here. We play it on a regular basis, and it goes a little bit like this. Pick the flick. Yeah, pick the flick. You get the synopsis, then pick the flick. You get the year, pick the flick. Okay, so just like the song says, I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis of a film, and you have to guess the title, the correct title, okay? And the common thread is that they're all films about the American dream. Oh, okay. That would be interesting. All right, so 1998. Two 1990s teenage siblings find themselves in a 1950s sitcom where their influence begins to profoundly change that complacent world. I think we talked about this earlier tonight. Was this not uh, Pleasantville? Very well done. Okay. Yeah. 2010, 
a Harvard student creates a social networking site and is sued by the twins who claimed he stole their idea and by the co-founder who was later squeezed out of the business. Uh, that was the Facebook movie. It was called, was it, uh, I think it was just called Social Network. All right. 1994. Going back a little bit for you, Derek. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's an easy one. The presidencies of Kennedy and Johnson, the Vietnam War, the Watergate scandal, and other historical events unfold mm, yeah. from the perspective of an Alabama man whose only desire is to be reunited with his childhood sweetheart. Yeah, that's Forrest, Forrest Gump. You're going to run the board on this one. Okay, 1999, a sexually frustrated suburban father has a midlife crisis after becoming infatuated with his daughter's best friend. Yeah, uh, American Beauty. Okay, 2006, a struggling salesman takes custody of his son as he's poised to begin a life-changing professional career. Wow. Did this one have Tom Hanks? I can't say. Was it the road to Perdi was it the road to perdition? I'm sorry, it was the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. Oh, Will Smith. Yeah. Right. Basically it's like right in there in the American uh you know, the mm -hmm. water, you know, life, liberty, yep. and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, that's yeah, that's why I wasn't uh, the the other one that I mentioned was about gangsters. That's why I'm like, I don't think that's right. It's not the same here in Canada. In Canada, our our motto is peace, order, and good government. It's not not quite as ambitious, you know. About uh, the other. But do you know it in French? But I do not. No. Neither okay. do I. All right. So carrying on with with this, 1951. Oh, going way back, bud. Oh, Over-the-hill salesman Willie Loman faces a personal turning point when he loses his job and attempts to make peace with his family. Um, I, I recognize the name. This is one of the classics. I'm trying to... I've never seen it, though. I'm mm -hmm. trying to think. Was it... Um, the, the name should give it away. Uh, it should, but I'm like... I, I've got like three I'm rattling around, and I haven't seen any of them, so I don't know. Um... Is it uh, Streetcar Named Desire? No, over the Hill Salesman? Death of a Salesman. Oh, Death of a Salesman. I was thinking Waiting for Godot, and I'm like, no, that's not right either. So, All right, 1974. A Midwesterner becomes fascinated with his nouveau riche neighbor who obsesses over his lost love. So what was the year again? 1974. I understand they made a remake of this movie a few years back, but uh, yeah, homie don't play that. So I'm going with the original mm. things. <laughs> so 1973. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh. It's The Great Gatsby. Remember, it's about the American dream here, okay? Oh, so, yeah. 2006, a family determined to get their young daughter into the finals of a beauty pageant take a cross-country trip in their VW bus. Oh, yeah, we talked about that one. That was, uh, it's got Eli in it. What mm -hmm. the, it was uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. There you go. All right, 1986, while emigrating to the United States, a young Russian mouse gets separated from his family and must relocate them while trying to survive 
in a new country. Is that, um, oh, it's uh, American something. It's it's a cartoon, right? Mm, it's about a mouse. Yes, it's uh, yes. American. Was it American? Uh, American Tale? Yes. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Wasn't there an Oscar winning song from that movie? I believe there might have been. I think so. Anyway, sorry, next question. Okay, last one. 1984. A Russian saxophonist visiting New York with a circus troupe suddenly decides to defect from the USSR during a shopping trip to a department store, but he finds adjusting to American life more difficult than he imagined. Did this one have Robin Williams? Perhaps. Was it uh, Moscow on the Hudson? Oh, you did pretty good. Yeah. Not never bad. saw it, but I know that one. Oh, you did good on Yeah, yeah the ones, a couple of the ones I missed, I did. I've just never seen the movies. But. Yeah. No. Okay, so next time out, it's time for another pop culture fantasy draft, my friend. So, so far, we've oh, done... back to that already. Wow. Yeah, I know. Hard to believe. Eh? Okay, so we've done 1980, 81, 82, 84, 85, and 89. So that leaves 1983... 86, 87, and 88. So it's it's my time to pick one. So I think I want to go somewhere right in the middle. So I'll tell you what. We'll come back next week and we'll hold a pop culture fantasy draft for the year 1986. Okay, so that's nice. three movies, three TV shows, three songs, and one personal pick. All must have debuted or been released in the year 1986. Okay? And so far in our Perfect. six drafts, I'm holding a lead of four to two. So you yep. can turn things I around. Need, I, need, I need another win here to get oh, back man. in the ballgame. You'll get right back in it with a victory in 1986 if you can do this. So that's what we're up for next week. So are you up for the challenge, my friend? Always up for this challenge. Yep. Nice. All right. We will come back next week and we will do a pop culture fantasy draft for the year 1986. Until we get, uh, get around to that. This is Chris McBride on behalf of myself and our producer Sloth and Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Thank you.